Welcome to Slide, the Avalanche Podcast. Coming to you this episode from Cabin 2 at the Sena Lodge, where it is dumping, yet not acoustically damp. Apologies for so few episodes this season, gotta pay the bills when you can. This time around we've got some Q&A, I've got stacks of questions, and it is past time to start splitting the stacks. Hey Doug, you said you wanted to hear from us about what else you might talk about. Here in Tahoe land, we've been dealing with low tide conditions too, and the snowpack has gotten pretty seriously upside down for a while. It's improving, finally, but I was wondering if you might expound on the long-term consequences of an upside-down snowpack and expand that to vapor transport in general. I had a good grip on vapor transport effects for about six hours during Aerie 2, but it does make my head hurt. Thanks, and pray for snow. Chris. Yes, I can. In other news... A man attempting to walk around the world drowned today. Just kidding, but not really. I assume by upside-down snowpack, you mean one that has facets on the bottom and slab on top? Often, the long-term consequences of such structure are persistent instabilities that move through periods of dormancy and activity, like a vampire. Sometimes they heal completely, unlike a vampire. Sometimes you get a big fat whomper that flushes most of that junk or creates a thick, strong layer above it. Like the wise man said, it depends. Regarding vapor transfer within the snowpack, I could expound on that subject, but I fear to. I'll see what I can come up with for a future episode. In the meantime, I refer you to Sally Barney's second grade class. Every time I work with them, some brazen seven-year-old tries to pin me down on vapor transfer within the snowpack. They usually stop asking questions about a meter into the two-meter shoveling drill. Hey, Doug. I have a question about trigger points and anchoring features. Um, Are they purely terrain-dependent and a judgment call? Are there certain transferable evaluation tools that you could use to discern the effect of said rocks or trees in situ? Um, if instability exists, should you rely on anchoring features anyways? Are they effective? Um, that's, that's it. I'm, given the extremity of the consequences in either case, it is a very curious topic for me. So, thanks. Anchoring is an unfortunate term that should probably go away. As a sailor, if you had an anchor that only kept your vessel in place some of the time, would you call it an anchor or a hazard? What if when said Danforth plow or claw failed, it always came flying off the seafloor and bashed you in the head with a giant hunk of steel? The consequences of relying on such an anchor would soon be apparent, even from your bleezing, dazed, supine position on the foredeck. Like the term safe spots, the term anchoring is misleading. Words matter. Why not call them what they are? Trees and rocks. Nothing wrong with those words. Maybe supporting is a better term than anchoring. It includes the idea of failure and the idea of supportive terrain features, beyond trees and rocks. The supportive capability of trees, rocks, and terrain is dependent on terrain, snowpack, and avalanche problem type. 
If you rely on rocks or trees to reduce the likelihood of avalanching or eliminate your vulnerability, then yes, it's a judgment call as to whether your anchor actually anchors or your safe spot actually keeps you safe. Words matter. Rules of thumb. I guess there are a few pearls from days of yore. If it's buried, it's not an anchor, is the first one that comes to mind. Trees need to be thick enough to make skiing hard, is another one that comes to mind. Art Mears once said to me, Spruce trees! It's got to be spruce trees! Nothing else matters! Those guidelines reduce the problem by applying a large margin. But here's some actionable intelligence for you. If you're wondering if that tree or rock is a trigger point or a supportive feature, because you want to rely on it as your safe spot, ask yourself this. Is that spot really safe? Or might the fluke fly from the bottom and bash us in the face again? Are you going to grab onto that tree or rock? Is that the plan? No, you are not. Because that is not how avalanche capture works. No magic beans here, but I hope that adds a little context for you. Our next avalanchista has a series of questions arising from an incident this winter. The first pertains to what she terms a resort safety halo, and the concept draws on American perceptions of risk within ski area boundaries. Her contention is that Americans go to ski areas and think they are safe and that the resort will protect them. Not really a question, but uh, I'll run with it. I would flip that and say, Americans expect their resorts to be safe, and indeed they routinely demand it via the legal system. Ski areas in the United States protect themselves from the public by protecting the public from sticks and rocks because they have been given little choice, not because they are paranoid. Despite recent inbounds avalanche activity, you are still more likely to get bit by a radioactive poisonous shark than be injured in an inbounds avalanche in North America. Argentina? Different story. That being said, let me spike that punch by referencing recent decisions in the state of Colorado that legally describe avalanches as one of the inherent risks of skiing. So much for job security. Mm. Our listener continues by opining, I want my friends and mountain community to put themselves in the best possible position to be safe in the mountains. I want to further my education. I do not want to come across preachy. Well, you don't have to preach or push to set a good example. People that are worth skiing with will follow a good example. On the other hand, It's hard to tell someone that you think they are engaging in unsafe behavior. But asking questions and sharing thoughts or opinions are responsibilities, not options. We don't get better at hard conversations by not having them, by avoiding them. That makes us better at not having hard conversations. All of us share the responsibility for improving our communication skills. If we don't practice and solicit feedback, we will fail. 
An Antipodean reductor asks about mental checklists for the way up and the way down. Well, on the way up, I suggest you identify your greatest uncertainties and seek to reduce them or live with them. Identify micro and macro avalanche terrain and reassess the avalanche hazard on a slope and feature-specific level. Have an observations plan and talk it out with your compañeros. Short checklist. Fat one. Chubby. On the way down, well, start before you actually start moving down. Apply a right-here-right-now risk assessment. Make sure everybody is on the same page about what you're doing and not doing. Then apply skepticism to your beliefs and reassess. Ready, set, go. T to B, baby. Waka Papa also asks for advice on how to communicate the avalanche danger to a group. Well, depends on the group. You can run the gamut from pipe down and do what I say to an extended discourse on your danger assessments, conceptual and evidentiary foundations, if you dare. Use avalanche problem descriptors like problem type, location, distribution, sensitivity, and size to frame your opinion and foster discussion. Use the language of risk to discuss exposure and consequences and risk treatment. Finally, we have Carrie from York Middle School. If she asks about vapor transfer in the snowpack, I am going to lose my shit. The wee Yorkshire lass has five, five questions. What do you think the most common reason people get caught in avalanches is? I believe the most common reason for avalanche capture is triggering an avalanche that captures you. If you don't poke the bear, she won't viciously maul you unless maybe you have a lot of fish or smell a lot like fish. Avalanche avoidance is easy. Playing nice with avalanches is harder. What do you think about avalanche airbags for safety equipment? I refer Carrie to episode something-something where I depart on an extended airbaggy diatribe. Too long? Didn't listen? Airbags are a great tool for reducing vulnerability in alpine terrain. They are one of many tools. What do you think the most important thing for beginners to learn about avalanches is? The most important thing for a beginner is to learn how to recognize avalanche terrain so he or she can avoid avalanches. Number four. What are the main human factors you should worry about when in avalanche terrain? The main human factors to worry about are the humans. They are everywhere, and they are dangerous. Once you figure out a human, you can start to figure out what might factor it. Overconfidence is a good one. All sorts of joeys suffer from overconfidence. Ian McCammon's FACETS acronym is also a good place to start figuring out humans. F is for familiarity, which is often a component of overconfidence. A is for acceptance, wanting people to like you. Just so you know, avalanches don't actually make people 
like you. C is for kumquat. No, that is K. C is for consistency. That's a refusal to change your plan, like continuing to climb a mountain when the weather is getting worse, or continuing to finish an entire pizza even though you are already stuffed. Again. E is the expert halo that surrounds someone you think is so smart, but maybe ain't so smart, or don't know how smart you think they is. T is for tracks, specifically first tracks. Some people like making them. If you don't know what those are, that's fine. I don't think you would like them. First tracks are dumb and have been known to cause cancer in laboratory voles. S is for social facilitation, which means that people take more risks in larger groups. Large groups are worse at making timely, informed decisions, and they tend to communicate poorly. One more question. What are some of your preferred ways to test the stability of the snowpack? I prefer to test the stability of the snowpack with a helicopter and 20-pound info shots. I feel that it gives me the most reliable indication of the stability of the snowpack. Some people like the ECT. I'm an info guy. You can get a heli made in the USA from Airbus Helicopters. Call 1-800-873-0001 and tell them you want an H-125 for heli skiing and avalanche control work. H-125. That number is 1-800-873-0001. We'll also need some federal and state permits, a background check, some tests, and a pilot. I can help you with a pilot. Bake sale, Carrie. Big bake sale. Sponsored by Slide, the Avalanche podcast. That's it. That's all. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Slide, the Avalanche podcast, you have fine taste and low standards and probably like fortune cookies. If you do not like Slide, the Avalanche podcast, may I suggest cheese? Everybody loves cheese. This episode is brought to you by the Silverton Avalanche School and DPS Skis. I got to go heli skiing all next week, but I'll get back to you as soon as I can. In the meanwhile, thank you. Pray for snow.